0: So today we come to a new chapter in Matthew's Gospel. We've just finished up Matthew chapter 5. And so go ahead and open up your Bibles or flip to Matthew 6. Matthew chapter (coughs) 6. Our series, which uh, maybe if you you haven't picked up on it yet, is the Sermon on the Mount to try to be as obvious as As possible, but the Sermon on the Mount is what we're working through right now, and that is, if you're unfamiliar with that, that is Matthew chapters five to seven, and it's a distinct section of the Gospel of Matthew that has been celebrated and really uh, an important has been an important touchstone, an important part of the life of the church from the very beginning. And so, what we wanted to do is take this passage of scripture from the Gospel of Matthew and to really give it some intensive focus, and to really dig down deep into that. So that's what we have been working through for some time, if you're unfamiliar with where we're at as a church, and we've made our way through the, as we've made our way through the Sermon on the Mount so far, we've looked at the Christian from a number of angles. Uh, We don't want to divide the Christian into compartments. We don't want to compartmentalize the person. But we do see, as we read the Sermon on the Mount, that there are different aspects to being a Christian, different ways of, kind of coming at, that, uh, at our Christian identity, uh, different angles from which we can come at this topic. And so what I want you to kind of do right now is think about sort of a Christian. Get an image up here on the stage of a Christian, over to the side here. We have this, this person, and Jesus, as he goes through the Sermon on the Mount, he's really dealing with the, this person. Who is he or she? What is he or she to do and be? And, and that is the topic. As, as one commentator, Sinclair Ferguson, has as his subtitle. I remember I told you all when I started that, all of these commentaries started arriving at my house, and I was so excited. I wanted to show Jennifer all of them. And so it was the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount. They all had the same title. She so was like, oh, this one. I bet it's the Sermon on the Mount. But with some of them, there are these nice little subtitles. And one of those subtitles by Sinclair Ferguson is Kingdom Life in a Fallen World. And that's what we're dealing with. As we look at this Christian, we're looking at a kingdom life in a fallen world. That's what Jesus is occupied with in the Sermon on the Mount. And so in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verses 3 to 12, we have the basic character of a Christian. We're talking at that point about a Christian's DNA, so to speak. This is the ingredients that go into the Christian life. Most fundamentally, at the core, that is what it is to manifest the Christian life, and, and that's the blessedness of it. Remember, those are Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of God and so forth. We have... All of these qualities that define the Christian at the core, and the ultimate quality is blessedness. We are those who've been blessed by God. At the end of our service, we have a benediction. It is a a kind of go in peace. It is a blessing. It is a reminder that God is blessing us as we leave here and go out into Christian life. He's blessing us as we worship here today, and he's blessing us as we go out and try to put these things into practice. And so the Beatitudes, verses 3 to 12, give us the basic character of a Christian. And then we got this very familiar salt and light passage, which you'll find over here on this wall, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. That very familiar, well known passage. And the intention of that passage is to show the societal impact of a Christian. So we have the basic character of a Christian in the Beatitudes. We have the societal impact of the Christian in these verses. What is he or she to be out in the world, and what is the effect or result of that person's life as he or she lives it out in the world? So that was Jesus' focus there. And then more recently, what we've been looking at is the ethical framework of a Christian. How should the Christian think about this thing called righteousness? What is it to to do and think and be rightly? That was the focus of verses 17 to 48. As we came right up to the end of chapter 5, that was the topic that we were concerned with. And essentially the answer is this, for the last one. The ethical framework of a Christian is this. Living out God's word as fulfilled in Christ. Remember, Christ did not come to abolish the law. But he did come to fulfill it. So living out God's word as fulfilled in Christ and living it out, listen to these three ideas, from the heart, for the good of others, and as a child of God. That is essentially the framework. If you want to think about the ethical framework, so all, let let me, let me submit this to you, all ethical issues, all specific questions of what we are to do In all circumstances, scenarios, all of those must, we must come at all of those questions within this ethical framework. So one of the things I encourage you to do is not to see these verses that we've just covered as a new law code. I think, you know, we we have a legalistic bent by nature, like these Pharisees. And what we want to do is say, okay, the old law code, here's Jesus' new law code. So this is sort of law number one. Make sure I do this so that you slap me on the right cheek the left one. And, and see, we're just thinking very much in terms of a very specific following or law-keeping, and that is not what Jesus came to give us here. What he came to give us is the Spirit who changes our hearts, and then he gives us a framework for understanding how to go out and live. And that's God's Word is fulfilled in him. So that's what we've been occupied with from verses 17 to 48. And today we come to the Christian from a different but related angle. This is the Christian as a religious man or a religious woman, the religious practice of a Christian. His or her observance or piety or practice, that's the angle that Jesus wants to to, to come at now. That's the aspect of the Christian that we now will concern ourselves with for, for a little while. So how are we to think about that? How are we to think about the Christian as a religious person, as a practicing Christian? You know, we use this language in a culture of nominal Christianity. You know, is that person a Christian? The, the right question is, does that person have a new part? Is that person born again? Have they been converted? Have they passed from death to life and so forth? But oftentimes, the questions that we have to ask, you know, or that we do ask are, is, yeah, okay, 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 but is he, is he or she a practicing Christian? Well, there's problems with that because it implies that Christianity is simply a matter of external works. And if a person is a Christian, how will you know that? Well, there's these external works. And that's how you know this person is a practicing Christian. But that is not the way we are to think about it. We are to think about it as being from the heart. Yet, at the same time, we are to think about the real functioning of the Christian life. The Christian life works, James tells us. The Christian life functions out in the world. It does things. It has practices about it. And that's what we find Jesus dealing with at this point in the Sermon on the Mount. So today our focus is just one verse. Chapter 6, verse 1. And, but we're, as, we come, as we come to it now, I want to go ahead and read the whole section, which is up through verse 18. And we'll skip verses 7 to 14 where we have basically the lord's prayer and that will be treated kind of on the side because the lord's prayer this passage from 7th from verse 7 all the way to 15 is is kind of an extended discussion on on prayer so you get Jesus talking here about giving about praying and about fasting but before he goes on to fasting, he wants to go ahead and give you a little bit more info on prayer, so we'll come to that later. So I'll skip over that discussion as we read through in Matthew 6. So go ahead and look at verse 1. And I will read verses 1 to 6, and then verses 16 to 18. So this is God's Word. Hear what it says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 5. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, you, citizen of the kingdom of God, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let to drop down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. What a despicable image that is. <coughs> You know, looking, t- trying to make your face look really bad. So people want to make some tired. He's so starved. He's so beat down because he's so holy. That's what these guys are doing. Disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. The opposite. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father, who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Like I said, we're just going to look at verse 1, which is an introduction to all of the rest. This is the, the portion that we will focus on today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his help. We need him greatly during this time. All of this is about him, for his glory, not our own selves. So we want that. We thank you for this very convicting and illuminating passage we God our our hearts are often twisted towards ourselves Father we, we just ask for your forgiveness this morning as a church for what perhaps are many 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 practices that are done Many practices that we do, many prayers, pray, that are done in the sight of men, rather than in your sight, Lord, we just ask for your forgiveness. We pray that you will continue to convict us of our sins as we go through this on the now. Father, we pray that as you convict us of our sins, that you will help us to run to the Lord Jesus. Help us to find in him the one who was never in the one who never wore a mask, the one who loved you with a pure heart. Father, we know that apart from him, we are damned, condemned, separated, lost. But in him, we are light. We are brightness. We manifest the splendor of your holiness. So Father, help us, help us to run to Jesus, help us to find in him the perfect righteous one, the one who stood in our place, the one who took our sins upon himself at the cross, the the righteous dying for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Father, we love you and we pray that our our deeds this morning, our deeds in worship, our deeds in conversation would be for your glory and for the good of our brother. God, would you help us? We know that our motives are often turned in the wrong direction, and we know that Satan has a field day with us in this morning, we ask that you will work against him even this morning, even in this prayer, even in this preaching, and in all that we do today, God, that you will do war against him, that you will help us do war against him, that you will lead us not into temptation.
1: Father, we ask for
0: grace in Jesus' name. Amen. So the topic that we're taking up today, which you'll see on the slide there, is righteous religion. I can say it this way. Religious practice that pleases our king and grows out of our identity in him. That is essentially what we're talking about. We're talking about practice. We're talking about real life, lived out religious practice But that which is submissive to our King, our Lord, and that which manifests his life in us. As I pray, Jesus perfectly lived before the Father. It is an amazing idea to think that Jesus never erred in the area of hypocrisy. And he never wore a mask like those other religious leaders and teachers He never had something going on in here that did not manifest itself out here. It was always the same. He was a consistent human being. He was the new Adam. He was perfect. So we must realize that it's the life of Christ. It's the life of Christ lived out, fleshed out through our everyday lives. So as I said before, 6-1 is the introduction to the section. And as Jesus introduces righteous religion, he shows us at least three things. And that's what you have up here on the slide. You have the presupposed practices, the prideful pitfall, and the petty payoff. I think those are the three things that Jesus addresses as he just introduces this section. Much of this will get fleshed out as we go through all the way up to verse 18. So let's look at the first the presupposed practices. The first thing that we need to see as we come to this new section is that the Christian life, the righteous life, does involve various religious practices. And these are presupposed here by Jesus. Jesus simply says that he (laughs) states that this is the case and he goes on to deal with how, but he states that this is the case. Verse 1 makes clear that Christians will practice their righteousness and we see this in the language of the three examples that he cites look at verse 2 as we go on past verse 1 verse 2 when you give right verse 5 when you pray verse 16 when you fast it's presupposed jesus assumes that these things are going to be happening And so he wants to give us counsel on what it looks like to do these things rightly. The giving of alms to the poor, offering prayers to God, and fasting were all key features of Jewish religious life. In fact, these were kind of the pillars of Judaism. These were the pillars of of Judaism as it was lived out. You know, you have the sacrificial system, obviously. That's the core of Judaism. The law, the Torah, and you have the sacrificial system. But as a Jew would sort of live out his or her life, the pillars of their faith were these three things, and they involved one's relationship to others. First, giving to help fellow human beings in need. There were many poor people at that time, far more than we even experience today. Even in other parts of the world, there were many poor people. There were very few things that that were done for them. They were just sort of lost and forgotten. And so the Jews, as a people, were very conscientious about caring for the poor. This was a theme throughout the Old Testament. In fact, the prophets would oftentimes point out the fact that Israel had not only walked away from God, by failing to worship him, and by going after false gods or idols. But they had also failed to worship God by mistreating and oppressing the poor. This was a key part of living out Yahwehism, or that which was focused on the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who revealed himself as the I Am at the burning bush with Moses. Yahweh is his holy name. So this was part of it, always. Giving to help fellow human beings in need.
1: It also relates to God, as we
0: see clearly with prayer, recognizing our need and devotion to Him. That was something that we looked at recently, was that the the people were not to swear by other gods. They were to swear by Yahweh, by the true God. They were to serve Him. They were to obey Him. And they were to swear by His name. He was to become their God. They were to pray to Him. They were to seek help from Him. In in times of drought, in times of famine, in times of crisis, or whatever it might be, they were to seek this God. They were to pray to him, depend upon him, and commune with him. That was a key part of what it meant to be a Jew. So we see that this involved one's relationship to others and to God, but it also involved one's relationship to himself or herself, denying self and mortifying the flesh, as we have with fasting. This idea of waging war against that self-centered idolatry or that self-centered pursuit of earthly things rather than God. And so fasting plays into that. And we'll talk more about these practices as we come to them. As I said today, we're just in the first verse. We're going to come to these practices individually. But what I want you to see at this point is that such religious practices are not nullified by the coming of Jesus. But they are carried over and given their fullest expression. You know, one of the things that we, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, may be tempted to do is to look back over the practices of the history of the Christian church and to begin to sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater, if you've ever heard that expression. And that is to say that we look back over certain practices of the history of the church and we think, well, that's just ritualism or that's just ceremonialism. Or that's just sort of going through the motions. It's not intrinsically going through the motions to actually discipline yourself in certain things. It can be, and culturally in the Roman Catholic Church, in the 16th century, it had become that. But many of the practices, the praying, and all of these things should not necessarily be thrown to the wind. Jesus expects that his followers will give that they will pray, and that they will fast, and that they, they will do a whole host of other things that deal with our relationship to others, to God, and to ourselves. Jesus expects that these things are going to be a part of the lives of every one of his disciples. Every one of those people who are sitting on that mountain listening to him as he preaches this Sermon on the mountain. everyone who will come to follow him, the, the 12 disciples who will follow him, Paul, who will come after those disciples who will proclaim the gospel, and all of those who, those churches that will be founded around the Mediterranean world, all of these people will go out knowing that these are the things you do. You see this all throughout the New Testament. Look at a book particularly like James. He talks about pure and undefiled religion. is what? To care for orphans and widows. A, a very practical thing very interesting when you read that. You think, what's at the heart of it? What is, what is pure religion? Tell us, James. What's so important? Be careful orphans and widows. That's important. And it was important to our Lord Jesus. He presupposes that that would be a part of who we are. So i want to just draw a few applications for us in this regard. The first one is, I think we should be aware of drawing a sharp line between spirituality and and religion, because we need to remember that in our culture today, there's a lot of talk about that sort of thing. I recently, read uh, or listened to an article about uh, the, the the topic of yoga in public schools, and this sort of addresses the issue. I won't get into that, but it, it, it addresses the issue of spirituality and religion and how the two are related to one another. So this is something that we hear about. All around us. And I think one of the things we as Christians can tend to do is to fall into that error. So it's an organized religion. No. Spirituality. Yeah, that's good. And what happens is we become Christians. God saves us out of our old life, but we still retain some of these false dichotomies. And so we have spirituality. We take and turn Christianity into something that is. Irreligious, or I should say unreligious. It's not religious at all. It does not involve practices, it does not involve structure, it does not involve any kind of outward participation in what has happened inwardly. And so I would just encourage all of us not to draw this distinction between spirituality and religion. If you would have watched Jews in the first century go and give money to others or pray or fast, we probably would be inclined to say those are those are that's religion. Yeah, but what we're really about as Christians is spirituality, not not religion. And I would just caution us against drawing a sharp line between those two sides of it. Let me also ask this question. Do you have a category? This is such an important question for all of us. Do you have a category of disciplines in your understanding of the Christian life? Do you have a place for that? Do do you think in those terms at all, disciplines, practices that you maintain whether or not you feel like it? I was recently listening to a sermon by Alistair Begg, and he was talking about how he he went to a church in California, both places, he went to a church in California, and he was sitting there, and there was a a clock, we haven't started doing this, we won't, uh, the clock counting down from five minutes, you know, going down, so the countdown, the countdown, and then uh, it starts. And one of the things he describes is that the worship leader then comes out and says, Hey, everybody, how do you feel this morning? And So maybe you've seen this clip from Alistair Meg. And so he talks about you know, what a dumb question that is to ask someone who's about to go in and worship the Lord. You may feel awful. This one—it's not about what you feel; it's about what you know to be true, what you know to be objectively true from God's word. That was the point that He was making. I think sometimes our Christian lives are based on our feelings, and that even has to do, oftentimes, with what we do. I just feel so led to give, so I'm going to give. I don't feel like giving. I'm not going to give. I don't feel like it. I feel like going to church today. I don't feel like going to church today. I just don't feel. Like doing that. I do like reading my Bible this morning. I'll read it tomorrow. It's just all feelings based. It, it, it all has to do with whether or not, it's almost as though we're waiting for it to be infused with all kinds of emotions in order for it to be powerful. That the efficacy of anything we do is tied to how we feel while we're doing it. That is not true. That is not true. In fact, one of the points that D.A. Carson brings up In the book, Praying with Paul, that we read in men's theology, is that we must, when we pray like that, we don't really believe God. We don't really trust God. We trust that God's word is true, that we are his children, that when we cry out, Abba, even if our minds are distracted, and even if we feel awful and don't even have a lot of faith in our hearts, that when we cry out, Abba, he says, yes. He listens. He hears us. We don't need to feel that. We know it. It's great when we feel it. It's great when we feel the power of God. It's great when we experience that refreshment of soul that we all know of as Christians. Sometimes those moments can be few and far between. The Sermon on the Mount Christian is one who disciplines himself or herself, and does these things because they are right, because they glorify God, because they are submissive to the king, and because it is his life coming out through them. That's why we do them. And that is an essential part of being a Christian. So let me ask this question. Do you have practices in place that pertain to helping others? Practices in place that pertain to relating to God. Think about this. Relating to God. And practices in place that pertain to mortifying their flesh or cultivating self-control. These three areas. In other words, don't, see, don't just see giving and praying and fasting as, a, once again, another little rule book Jesus has given us. So what, what do we do as Christians? Well, we pray, we, we fast, we give. There you go. That's, what, that, that, that's exclusive, exclusively what we do. That's comprehensive. No, that's not the point. It's these larger ideas. What kinds of practices are we cultivating in our lives in these three areas? Jesus presupposes all of this for his people. I want you to consider this idea unpracticed righteousness is not Christian. It's not Christian. That was James' point in James chapter 2. Without works, faith is dead. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The just shall live by faith. So what is the essence of Christianity? Well, what's the foundation of faith? And faith always works, James tells us. It always practices itself. So unpracticed righteousness is no righteousness at all. It is not Christian. So these practices are presupposed in Jesus' <laughs> teaching, but how should we engage in these religious practices? That's the real point of chapter 6, 1 to 18. That's the real point. That's the focus. This is just a side point, really. As we move into it, we're just meant to say, yeah, these things happen within the church. But the main point Jesus makes is how should we engage in these religious practices, these disciplines, these devotions to the Christian life? How? And that leads to our second point, the prideful pitfall. If I were to ask you, what is the most significant idea we've encountered over the last several weeks? As we've gone through all of these various topics, these examples or illustrations murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, and so forth. These various ideas, that, these topics that we've covered. If I were to say, what, what, what is the idea that sort of rises to the top? I think at least one of them, if not the main idea, is the heart. The heart is at the core of all of these various teachings of Jesus. Remember, murder, murder, and adultery really set the tone as we came to those first two topics because the murder issue says that it's not about the external act. Jesus is teaching is that if you're angry with your brother you have committed murder with that person in your heart. And what does he say about adultery? He says that it's not just about going and sleeping with another man's wife or being married and sleeping with someone else. It is about looking lustfully upon another person. That that's adultery. Well, that, tell, that sets the tone. And in fact, that sets the tone for all of the Sermon on the Mount and all of the New Testament, that it has to do with the heart. The righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. The leading religionists of Jesus' day. And I guess if you were to go today to, to a Buddhist country, who would be the people that you would kind of go to? The gurus would be those Buddhist monks. They would be the guys who sort of house all of the great information. There might be some people on the street who know if you think that those guys really know about Buddhism. And in some ways, this was the situation that was going on at the time of Jesus. There were these scribes, the interpreters of the law, these Pharisees, these meticulous keepers of the law, so they thought. And they were the religionists of the day. They were the, Those people, those, that ragtag bunch of people listening to Jesus on that mountain, they had a high estimation. You need to understand this. They had a high estimation of the scribes and Pharisees. They saw them as the source of knowledge as far as Jewish life was concerned. It's not as though Jesus is up there teaching about scribes and Pharisees and they're sitting there going, Amen, Jesus. That's not the case. These people appeared righteous. But Jesus says that the righteousness that exceeds theirs is a righteousness of the heart. Purity of the heart. Honesty. Sincerity. Worship. Love. That's what Jesus is talking about in sermon. Not what these guys are manifesting. This heart religion was foreign to these scribes and Pharisees. Listen to the way Jesus describes them in Matthew twenty-three twenty-seven. Listen to this very vivid description of these men. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like white-washed tombs. Really pretty. You didn't walk by it. That would be like a, a tourist attraction. Beautiful tomb. Of dead people inside, beautiful on the outside. Kind of like we think about when we go to these old cemeteries. Oh, this is such a beautiful cemetery. This is such a strange idea. Cemeteries are can be quite beautiful, but they're filled with dead people. Where you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's. Bones and all uncleanness. These were not to be around dead bodies. All uncleanness. What we have here is outer perfection. It's pristine. It is beautiful. It's outwardly very pure and perfect. And all the ignorant, common folks are just going, wow. But on the inside, it is rottenness, it is darkness, it is evil, it's hypocrisy. And at the center of this heartless hypocrisy, this playing a character, wearing a mask, pretending to be something that they weren't, at the heart of all of this is an intense desire. Hear this. This is the main idea of this verse. It is an intense desire to be noticed and praised by men. To be noticed and praised by men. They loved that. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 5, they do all their deeds. When Jesus uses the word all, he means all. All. Everything these guys do, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They got some serious peripheral vision. Everything they're doing. They notice what's, they want people to see them. They want to attract the attention of everybody. They're walking through the streets and they know that folks are going man, so man John 12 43 Jesus says this, they love they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God that's how these men live their lives every day, all their deeds were about that so not only were these men perverting God's holy law, which we've looked at time and time again from verses 21 to 48. We've talked on all these topics. We've tried, I've tried to show you how murder or adultery or divorce, or whatever, how they've, they've twisted God's law. We've gone back into the Old Testament and we've seen in each instance how they've taken the law of God and they've twisted, they've turned it, they've distorted it, they've replaced it, they've added to it, they've taken away from it. Not only are they doing that in terms of doctrine and in terms of the ethical teaching of God's speaking, Not only are they doing that, but they were perverting holy practices as well. So Jesus says to his followers, what we read in chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. I want you to notice that Jesus uses the language of caution. Beware The verb used means to be in a state of alert or to be concerned about something. It is as though, consider this, it is as though as we see recent terrorist attacks even yesterday in other parts of the world, that countries have these various levels of alertedness to terrorist activity. And those things like a sliding scale, when things happen, it goes to the top. When things are kind of quiet and intelligence agencies think that there's a bit of safety, they go back down, but they come back up. And what Jesus is telling us is that it should always be high. It should always be high for the Christian. Beware. Be in a state of alert. Be concerned. And this verb is in the present tense, which tells us keep being concerned. Stay always on the alert. Beware every moment of every day, Christian. And remember that Jesus' primary audience is his disciples, those who are beginning to follow him. We know this from the very beginning. His disciples came to him. He says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. He says, you will be persecuted for my sake. We also know this because as he goes on to teach about prayer, he says, Our Father in heaven, pray like this, Our Father, which means that those who would respond to this Sermon on the Mount and become Jesus' disciples by God's grace would call God Father and would live this out. So, what does this tell us? It tells us that there is a very real danger facing every Christian, every moment. Have you thought about it? Have you thought about this danger? There are a lot of things, you know, we looked at oats, and one of the dangers that we saw that we tend to overlook is the idea that anything other than yes and no is from the evil one. One of the points I made there is that you don't tend to think about Satan, you see, with his horns and his pitchfork in our minds, you don't tend to think about Satan showing up in slight deceit. Yeah, it's not good, but that's not diabolical or satanic, but It is. And I think we're meant to see that here as well. It is evil and it is serious. And that is why Jesus says, beware all the time. About this, perhaps it's something that you haven't even thought about. So what is it? To perform, to pretend, or approve? We love approval. We all do. In every facet of life. Around everyone that we know, we love approval. Human beings are are that way, especially in our fallen state. The approval of our fellows is hugely significant. To perform or pretend for that approval. To worship our own pride rather than God. This is the prideful pitfall that all of us must fight all the time. That all of us must fight to avoid all the time. We'll explore this topic more in the weeks ahead as we look at the specific applications. We're going to look at Jesus applying this principle to giving and prayer and fasting. We're going to look at those. But I want to just ask some general application questions even now that help us to sort of lean into some of these specific issues that will come up as we talk about giving, praying, and fasting. So let me ask this. What's in your mind? While you are doing a religious act, while you are engaging in a good deed, or you're practicing your righteousness, what's in your mind? Think about that for a moment. Are you thinking about God as you do it? You know, one, one commentator said, uh, James Montgomery Boyce made a comment about how he wonders how, the, the, how tiny of an amount of prayers given in church this was going to be how tiny the number of prayers given in church, in corporate worship, are made to God or to other people. And think about that. Even in our little small groups, are we praying to God or are we just like shooting our prayers out horizontally? Focused on our, on our the, making sure we use the right words in the right way. We're making sure that you know, we're tying together theology or doing this or doing that. Whatever. Whatever it is that we do. To perform, to get approval, to make people think highly of us. Jesus says that is not the way. That is not the way for those who call him Lord and Savior. Not the way. Even when it's private, let me ask you this: Even when it's private, are you somewhere inside hoping that it becomes public? You know, think about this for a moment. Kind of give you, you, you give privately. You know, somewhere deep down inside, in that heart, you're thinking, well, I mean, you don't even say it. Of course you don't say it. But it's in there. You think, well, I mean, maybe it'll be noticed. Maybe it'll be noticed. Maybe sometimes it'll come around and get noticed, and then I'll get some approval. I'll get some higher reputation. I'll get a little praise out of that. And so it may not even be that we're doing it blatantly in front of people, but we're doing it in such a way, and even this, and this is why Jesus don't let your left hand and what your right hand is doing, even in such a way that we're haphazard in the way we do it, with a tiny little hope deep down inside, that in that haphazardness, it might get noticed. That's how we work. Deep down in our hearts. The alternative is worship and love. That's what it all boils down to. Worship, love. And here's the thing, imagine this. How much are we using when we do that? Can you imagine giving to someone to help them in a time of need when in fact you are cruelly, listen to this, think about this. You give someone $5,000, $10,000, $100,000, whatever, I'm just using a monetary gift as an example. And you think in your mind, maybe you don't even well on it. But in the moment, it was about you. It was about showing them something. What you've just done is you have, in terms of appearances externally, you've done something for someone. But internally, let me tell you what you've done. You have made that person a pawn in the worship of your own pride. They've become nothing but an object which you can stack behind the worship of your own idol. Which is pride? That's not love. Does it matter how many zebras there are? It's not love. What Jesus asks for, what Jesus commands, is worship and love. Thoughts that are directed exclusively to God and the good of our neighbor, and then we forget. We we'll move on to the next thing. A final question to consider is how these verses in Matthew 6 about not practicing before the eyes of men relate back to 516. Remember earlier, turn back to 5.16 quickly, if you will. So in chapter 5, verse 16, and these verses, these, these words seem to contradict those words. Listen to what Jesus says there. Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let them see it. Let them see it. Jesus is saying there. So what's going on? I think we are to come away with two overarching principles as we set these verses side by side. First, it's about the motive. That's obvious from the text. That's obvious in terms of our thinking, but look at how that plays out in the text. One motive is God-centered. Look at where that verse ends. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see it? It's not a detachment. There's such a fluid motion. They may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven. It's all together. It's one packaged thing. It's not, so they may see your good works and give glory to your father. It's not that, it's one thing. It's God-centered. It moves through you to God. Just like that. The alternative is self-centered in order to be seen by them. Doing your good works. Practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. So that's the first principle. It has to do with motive. The second principle is it's about the temptation. I love John Stott's quote. He actually got this quote from somewhere else. But I love the quote that he includes in his commentary on this. He says, we are to show when tempted to hide, and hide when tempted to show. Love that. Think about it. In 5.16, what has Jesus just finished telling his disciples? He's just finished telling them, you are going to be persecuted. You're going to suffer for righteousness' sake, for my sake. And it's out of the context of suffering that we are tempted towards cowardice. We are tempted to hide away our faith that we might not be persecuted, that we might not be killed or cursed or whatever else. So in that situation, it is all the more important that we shine, right, Christ to the world. But when we are tempted towards vanity, we hide away. Two very different situations here.
1: So I think it's about motive. I also
0: think, as John Stott points out, that it is about the temptation involved. In every moment, we just know. We know. We know. There's no excuse on that. We know whether this is a cowardice moment or a vanity moment. And finally this morning, Jesus wants us to see that this battle between worship and pride Has very real consequences. And that brings us to our final point today, the petty payoff. Look at the end of verse 6, 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. That last clause, therefore, then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. A recurring theme in the New Testament is the rewards that we receive from our Heavenly Father in the life to come. In fact, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the, the uh, implications of that for us he, he encourages us to keep on and not lose heart keep on doing, doing work that we will be rewarded it's essentially what he's saying at the end of that passage we are to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal that would make no sense Without a notion of rewards. We are not to store up for ourselves treasures on earth. Surround ourselves with all kinds of comforts of this life. And focus all on that. We're to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Because it's going to be there. There's a, a book. I forget the name of the author. It's called The Treasure Principle. And he talks about pull. It's Randy Alcorn. Alcorn is his last name. He he talks about laying up treasure in heaven and and how we're investing in, in in our eternity that we're putting that money there and it's as though we're looking beyond this life and we're investing it there where it really really matters. That's what we're called to do in the New Testament. Matthew 16:27 for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. That's going to happen. That's And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Ephesians 6.8 says this, Whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. This is truth. It matters. It it really matters. And in that day, in that day, we will be saddened by the fact that it didn't matter here and now. That we didn't leave here today with a fresh desire for it to matter. What our motives are. May that not be the case. Soon we will all be gone. May we not stand before the Lord one day and deliver these words and realize that we did not do the word. We just heard it. And if we want a definition of the nature of these rewards, we look to Matthew 25, 21. Listen to this. God will say, Well done, We've all heard this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Do you see those three facets of our reward? Commendation from the Father. And here's the thing when we think, oh yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of important. It is hugely important. Imagine this. If a little child can be so affected by a failure to commend them and to affirm them How much more does that commendation and affirmation matter? From our Heavenly Father, it does matter. And in that day, in all of His splendor, and all of His glory, in Christ, before the holy angels, it will matter to hear those words. It is not a trifle. And for those of us who think, well, I'll be in heaven, it doesn't matter. We may not even be saved. If you think that way, you probably aren't saved. Commendation responsibility We don't even know what that means, but we know there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. I was talking with Sharon Sellers recently about my son Jacob and how, you know, he's convinced that one of his favorite animals, the T-Rex, and one day he's going to ride on a T-Rex in the new earth. And I'm saying, I think that's going to happen. I'm telling him, I'm thinking that that's probably going to happen. I don't know what the new heaven and the new earth is going to be like. But it's going to matter what we did in this life. It's going to matter responsibility, and joy enter into the joy of your master. <clears throat> it matters what we do. But all is of grace. All is of grace. And we know that from Ephesians 2.10, where it says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. And how do we understand that? How do we understand the fact that God gives us the grace and in his sovereignty ordains that we do the works and then he rewards us for the works which he ordained for us and empowered us to do? It's wonderful. I can't explain that. But it's what the Bible teaches that the very rewards themselves are grace because they come from works that were graciously borne out through God's spirit in us. Not from ourselves. They're not intrinsic to us. They are all God's grace, and that's why crowns go at the feet. Crowns go at the feet of Jesus in Revelation. They belong to Him. Essentially, Jesus is saying that we must avoid falling into the pit that He describes in John four, 5, five, forty-four. They receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. You get what you seek. You get what you seek. You seek the glory of men, you get it, a little bit. Or do you seek the glory of God? If you do, you will get it. The issue here is one of reward replacement. We can either seek the petty payoff, the temporary praise of men, or the eternal reward of God. And every moment when we're doing those good works, when we're practicing that righteousness, it is a moment of crisis in which... We can either do vaporous, meaningless things, or we can lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Every moment is a crossroads. So let me leave you with just two questions this morning. Two questions. Whose eyes, whose eyes are you concerned about? So some conviction. So convicting for anyone who would get up in front of people and speak. So convicting for anyone who would, in a group, pray. Because how corrupt our hearts are, how twisted our motives are, and how much we love the praise of men, and how much we love ourselves. Whose eyes? Which reward? Which reward? Our Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. God, we, we are laid so low by Your Word and then built so high up at the same time. We consider that we will, we will share in the glory of Your Son. And yet in this life, we are so twisted in our motives, so pretentious, and so much idolatrous of the praise of Him. Yet You save us through Christ's cross. You raise us to newness of life as you regenerate our hearts and you promise us a life to come. God, how undeserving we are of all of this. But we praise you this morning that though we are so undeserving, you are loving and kind and merciful and quick to forgive and slow to anger and compassionate and abounding in steadfast love, God. you, that this is who you are, that though we change, we are fickle, we are different yesterday, today, and tomorrow, you are the same, always God. And you will be the same God one day when you stand in your presence. Perfectly like God, help us go to the weight of your word.